Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic, and everybody calls me Bibbs. Oh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. People write in and call me Rockmeister McCool. And, hey, I hope to earn someday. Um, so this week on the Critically Acclaimed Network, you may have noticed there's a little bit of delays and stuff. Um, if you were waiting for our new movie reviews on Critically Acclaimed, that got pushed back just far enough that it stopped making sense to not like go into production on other podcasts. <laughs> so we're just going to delay that until this weekend. That's going to be a little behind. Sorry. Uh, however, if you need more Bibbs and Whitney, uh, we really want you to head over to Video Chronic. Where Whitney and I, uh, uh, we did a live trivia contest to see which of us knew the most about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And I'm not going to tell you who won. What I will say is it was very close, and it came down down to the wire. Down to the last question, in yeah. fact. And That's always very dramatic. Super dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, so please check that out. They're really wonderful people over there. Video Drew, who was on an episode of Cancelled Too Soon about a month ago, talking about Mulholland Drive, is there. Nerd Chronic, who edits all the wonderful promos for the movie trivia showdown. That's over there, and you can just find that on YouTube. Uh, pretty easy. Just search for it. Um, but yeah, check him out. It was a really fun time. Whitney uh, is a brilliant uh, uh, film n- knowledgean. No, no. <laughs> Nologian. I'm also a good wordier guy. Yeah, but um, Whitney, I maintain, uh, is one of the best players in the Schmodown who's just had a bad run of luck. Oh, piss. So I, uh, it, I, would, I would always feel threatened going up against him. Under any contest. Well, maybe one day we will, just like head-to-head, one-on-one, one on one, go, go up against each other. You're going to throttle me, though. I don't think that's the I case. I think you're, you're far better at that game than I, I am. I think I know the game a little better, but mm. I think if you played more often, you too would know the game. You have the worst goddamn luck ever. Every single time you play, you play for like two matches, and then some bullshit happens. You played for one match beginning of the season. I think you like tied the team record or something. We did pretty well. Yeah. yeah. And then... Pandemic <laughs> and no more matches. You've got the worst goddamn well, luck in the showdown. I'll, I'll say this: during the pandemic, I cannot lose. <laughs> I, if I'm not fighting any matches, I cannot lose. So anyway, uh, I'll, I'll my re- my record will stay completely the same. Anyway, we, we don't want to we don't want to uh, waste any more time. Let's jump right into mm. some letters. You can email us. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We don't have time to read them all, but we sure as hell try. Let's jump in. Here's a letter from B.A. Pronouns she, her. Hello, B.A. Hello. Um, uh, Dearest Bibbs and Whitney, damn you rapscallions! Two exclamation points. I love being called a rapscallion. I've never been a scoundrel, but I'll take a a rapscallion. Or a varlet. Can I be be, uh, uh, a scamp? No, you're too old to be a scam. I can't be a scam. No, once once I missed my window. I think like age thirteen or so, you, you just you grow out of scam. Wanted to be a mischievous scam. <laughs> I, no, wait, thirteen. You're thinking a ragamuffin. No, ragamuffin's like eight and under. Okay, you're, you got. You don't have kids yet. You don't know how this works. I apologize. <laughs> Let's move on. Damn you, rapscallions! You made your last episode of All Our Yesterdays available to the lower tiers, and then had the nerve to dangle the trouble with troubles before me as a coming episode. <laughs> You knew that was irresistible bait. I had to immediately up my Patreon level to ensure that I would get a, a future podcast. At least part of the $1,200 stimulus check went for something wor- worthwhile. 
thank you for following us. I'm glad you listened to uh, yeah. to all our yesterdays. That's I'm our glad, Star Trek podcast. I'm glad you think it's worth it, that, that money. It's wor- but that, yeah, your, if your stimulus money is for bills and food, spend it on bills and food. Please spend it on yeah. bills and food. Those things like, come first. Seriously, we we don't want you to be like starving like we, and trying to subsist on our podcast. We, it's we, not that we don't produce enough of them. They're just low in nutrients. We, <laughs> we do appreciate every cent we get. I'm going to yeah. say that. We appreciate all of our patrons and all of the attention you give us and, and all of your support. But we don't want anybody to make things worse for themselves. Yeah. So. Also, I want to clarify, uh, I accidentally mm-hmm. – uh, uh, w- over at Patreon, we have different tiers. And if you're at like the $10 tier, you get the Star Trek podcast. Mm-hmm. You get the $5 tier, you get uh, the, the uh, Not on Disney Plus podcast. Mm-hmm. You're at the $1 tier, you get the Firefly podcast. And upper tiers, you get all the podcasts from the lower tiers as well. But um, I accidentally just set the podcast to just everyone. Mm-hmm. And I realized it's so late. I was like, you know what? Everyone gets a treat. I really wasn't thinking of it like the first hits free. <laughs> yeah, you might want to. You might want to make those quote mistakes every once in a while. I might have to tease. now. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> if everyone was a bit of a tease, but um, yeah, if you want more, I'm glad we have it for yeah. you. Uh, she, uh, she continues. Seriously, I am so glad that Linoleum and I've introduced me to your universe of podcasts. I am a truck driver, and during this Ooh. pandemic, I'm working harder than ever getting supplies to people. Oh, God thank you. Bless you. Um, thank you for that. You guys help pass the time during those long, lonely miles. Uh, love, BA. Uh, well, thank you so much, thank uh, you. BA. Yeah. Um, I hope we are we are producing enough content <laughs> to keep to keep your ears full. I would love to know. Hmm. Because I think one of the things that this uh, uh, national emergency has reminded us or taught us, if we never really thought about it before, uh, just how essential the essential workers are and also just how screwed over they get and they should get paid way more. Like People who get you food mm-hmm. and other things that we like desperately depend on for survival should probably be getting paid more than... Hmm. than us <laughs> like they should be getting paid like a lot of money so i just want to say thank you to everybody who's doing an essential job right now thank you to truck drivers who do an essential job all the time and frankly do not get nearly enough credit for it mm-hmm. it is a hard job it is a time-consuming job it is an exhausting job and i would be very very curious if there are any truck drivers in our audience other than uh ba but we'd love to hear from mm-hmm. ba as well What's the great truck driver movie? Oh, definitely Convoy. I don't know. If, oh, dude. No, no. I'm sorry. That Convoy was, is really... That was an insult to everything. Um, yeah. Specifically the movie Convoy. Convoy, yeah. Convoy is a bad movie. Convoy is based on a song about a truck convoy, mm. and they tried to turn a truck convoy into this sort of rebellious act against mm. the state or whatever, and boy, does it not work. Um, I think the most obvious example for many is Smokey and the Bandit, but for mm. me... No, because we actually spend way more time with the bandit in the car. Than we do with the trucker. Than we do in the truck. So for me, that's very much tangential. It's a great movie. I love that movie. But no, for me, and I'm curious if any actual truck drivers uh, uh, bear this out, the movie I think of is White Line Fever. Oh, you know what? I haven't seen White Line Fever. I haven't seen a lot of trucker movies. Yeah. Uh, there was a there was, uh, there was a, a movie called Breakdown from '96, mm. but, but that's not specifically about truckers. It just has like some villainous truckers in it. Yeah, it's also um, when I think of like movies that like truckers would probably enjoy. Movies where mm. truckers are the evil kidnapping villains probably aren't the top of the list. That's why I didn't put like 
uh, Duel on there, Steven Spielberg's oh, okay. Duel, which is also about an evil truck driver. Uh, but yeah, White Line Fever stars Jan Michael Vincent, and he's like trying to do noble deeds and just, you know, put food on the table as a truck driver, but corruption pushes him to vigilanteism. It's got some really cool stunts. I actually saw this at the New Beverly, like, years before you worked there. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, in, a, in, like, a series of trucker movies mm-hmm. that were being screened, thanks to Quentin Tarantino. Um, Convoy that was, was definitely no doubt the in there, because Convoy, I mean, it's got to be in there. Right? I feel like it was, but White Line Fever was definitely the one that held up the best of the ones that I saw. But if anyone else has any favorite mm-hmm. trucker movies, especially if you're a trucker, I would love to hear it because in my general experience, the people who have very specific jobs often gravitate towards films that people who don't have those jobs Mm -hmm. don't see the same way. Yeah. So anyway, let's move on. Okay. uh, Here is a letter from Robin. Hello, Robin. Hi, Robin. Um, Hello, Bibbs and Rockmeister, Macool German spelling. It's uh, M A with an umlaut, C K U H L, Macool. You should be cataloging all these spellings. Maybe I should. I think you should. I, I've said on the podcast before, every single spelling is the correct spelling. <laughs> uh, longtime fan, Patreon subscriber, and first-time writer of emails oh. to you. Well, hello, Robin. Welcome to the letters column. Yeah, uh, thank you, here. Thank you for providing your interesting, fun, and funny content to the strange, strange times. I do love all your podcasts, and I hope to see you both and your lovely teammates again in the Schmodon at some point in the future. We discussed. We, we, yep, yeah, we uh, want to be there. I just discovered a podcast from here in Germany, hmm. and I've noticed some interesting similarities. It's called Strotterbender Strayberg. Those are the names of the three hosts. Okay. And the hosts are discussing movies and TV, but also books, video games, and other media. Uh, but m- the most striking similarity is the cat who jumps on the table <laughs> and interrupts the recording. He is a bit more rowdy than Luca or Sergio when he drinks their water. He puts hairs in their coffee and claws them, and they shout, Piss off, Titus! <laughs> it's just a funny coincidence I thought you should know about. Uh, piss off Titus is that that's coming to ABC pretty soon. That sounds like a great podcast in and of itself. Um, I'm very curious. I don't actually, I listen to other podcasts, but I don't listen to like podcasts all the time. So Mm -hmm. I don't have this like grand sweeping awareness of everything going on in the podcasting universe. There are all these famous podcasts I've never listened to like serial. We're we're too busy podcasting. (laughs) Yeah. We're we're making our own, we're contributing our own and we try to listen to other people's stuff, Mm -hmm. but what we do takes a lot of time and research, and we try. Mm. So I would love to hear, like, some sort of, I don't know, some sort of rap session or mm. um, uh, uh, even a podcast of just other podcasters talking about how their pets have ruined podcasts from here to eternity. I suspect a lot of people edit that stuff out, mm. but we want you to know exactly what it's like to live with the cutest cats in the world. Aww. Where are they? Where are the cutest cats? Where are they? <laughs> oh, there's Sergio. Sergio is hidden in a shadow because he's still gray and can do that. Sergio is a Russian blue. Uh, Sergio is uh, very old. Yeah. He's, he's an old man. And, he's about and 16 years. years old in, in human years. Yeah, that, that is an elderly cat. And, and he, he is, is he's spry. He's super spry. He's smart. He's, uh, he still like, gets into adventures and mischief. Um, he's he's a little he's a little more nap prone than he used to be, but mm-hmm. he's saving his energy for the moments when he can like break into our cabinets and steal food out of them, <laughs> which he does every day. <laughs> One time he got through the childproof lock we had to put on there. 
and I don't know how he did that. (laughs) And I'm very worried I have to get another childproof lock for our upper cabinets, not our lower cabinets where we're like uh, cat hide. Hmm. I don't know how he did that. Anyway, let's move on. (laughs) Uh, The film, uh, now on to something completely different. I'm sure you know, and I've probably already talked about Holy Motors, a film Mm. that I love. I love Holy Motors. Holy Motors is great. You, know, you want to borrow my Blu-ray? I got it. Yeah, when you um, watch Farscape. <laughs> it's a wonderful, weird, funny French masterpiece about the modern evolution of filmmaking. It was a highlight of our WTF movie night, where we watch movies uh, which break conventions and storytelling and style, and I'd love to hear your take on it. Uh, I constantly come back to Holy Motors as one of the best of the decade uh, because of its kind of meta aspects. Um, mm. I, I like to cite one of the opening scenes where Leos Carax, the film's director, is in the film and he's just sort of staying in a dingy motel room and he pushes on the wall and he finds this aperture in the wall in his motel room and there's this big black space and he passes through and he comes out on the other side and he's inside a movie theater. Mm. And there's a, it's this old ancient movie palace, you know, big with a balcony and mm. there's a movie screen right next to him and the entire audience is asleep. <laughs> and that's sort of, I think, his idle take on modern film audiences. They just sort of go to movies to zone out and he uh, seeks to confront you. And boy, that movie does confront you because you kind of are, can't help but get involved with how strange it is. Uh, anyway, he says, uh, this also brings me to a Belgian movie called Le Tout Nouveau Testament, or The Brand New Testament. Hmm, uh, both films have nothing in common except the occasional interspecies romance between apes and humans. Uh, maybe it would be an interesting triple feature with Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. <laughs> I highly recommend this comedy about God's daughter and her journey to gather some disciples and write a New Testament. God lives with his family in Brussels <laughs> and is a miserable guy who takes pleasure pleasure in inventing more and more commandments a la though doorbell shall ring when thou take a uh, the doorbell shall ring when thou take a warm bath uh, <laughs> and also planning airplane catastrophes oh one day God. his daughter Aya sneaks into his office to text everyone in the world their exact time of death it's <laughs> awesome it's kind of weird characters in a world of chaos my kind of film that sounds great that does sound really fun yeah, yeah, yeah totally I like up that. my alley yeah. uh, if you don't know, know it check it out that includes my rambling thoughts I felt like telling you about I uh, hope you stay sa- safe and healthy Liebe Grüße Robin thank you for that yeah. Uh, yeah we'll have to check that out that sounds like a really fun mm-hmm. movie uh, and Whitney has been talking of Holy Motors uh, since uh, well since Holy Motors came out mm. and twelve um, I think that movie came out. I honestly don't know why I haven't seen it yet. Mm. I should have. I feel like I'm supposed to, mm. but I feel defiant. <laughs> You're kind of holding out. No, I'll get around to it. You know what it is? It's a movie I kind of wanted to see on a big screen, but you know nowadays it's kind of a moot point. So I might mm. as well just get around to it. Yeah. All right. Let's get another letter. Uh, here's a letter from B. Peterson. Hi, B. Peterson. Hi. Uh, B. Peterson writes uh, writes into us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've we've read some of uh, B.'s letters before. Uh, Dear Cinnamon and the Fiendish Doctor Zoltan. Uh, quick one today. William, you finally got me to watch High Strung. Yes. And I found myself completely astounded by the dancing. Yes. Even I haven't seen High Strung yet. No. Or or High Strung in it to win it. What was the sequel? Uh, High Strung Free Dance. Free Dance. I'll tell you all about these movies in a second. All right. Let's uh, read the email. <laughs> this was probably because I had never seen a dance film before. <gasps> Whoa! You poor lost soul. I know that was your introduction to the genre. Mm. I don't know if I would have picked it, but I'm glad it worked out. Mm. Definitely go with center stage next. Oh, sure. <laughs> it's seen, actually pretty good, but I've, no. I've seen musicals, good. sure, but this is something different, something purer. <laughs> now, I know about the Step Up franchise, and I know that Astaire and Rogers are a thing, but not much else. Would you mind throwing out a list of must-see 
dance films. Thank okay. you. See you in the next one. B. Peterson. Uh, I love this. Um, first off, High Strong. If you've never seen High Strong, High Strong is great. High Strong is really, really entertaining. It's uh, really sincere and naive and weird. And it is about a professional, I'm sorry, a, a dance student mm-hmm. who teams up with a violin wunderkind to win a contest uh, that combines string instrumentation and dance. Mm. Along the way, they get into violin fights with other violinists, um, and uh, they fall in love, of course, and it's really, really delightful. Uh, the sequel, High Strung Free Dance, is also very, very whimsical. Only a couple of minor characters connect the two. It's basically its own thing. You don't have to see one to see the other. Uh, but that is also about a dancer who teams up, in this case with a pianist, mm. uh, in order to, I don't know, dance and do pianists. Um but uh, they are both very, very charming. And here's the thing about dance movies. And here's the thing that I think there's a lot of parallel and overlap between mm-hmm. dance movies and musicals, but it's not really quite the same thing. Dance movies are about strictly the the love of performance and the physical expression of the actors. I would actually argue that dance movies have a little more in common with kung fu movies mm-hmm. than they do with conventional Musicals, although many films are both. Um, Oftentimes they are about conflict, and conflict that is uh, interpreted or resolved through dance. Sometimes it's just about the beauty of dance. But a good dance movie can't fake it. A good dance movie needs good dancers. And so Mm. even some of the bad dance movies that are just, you know, ineptly produced are often enormously entertaining because they're all built around these bravura showcases. Yeah, yeah. So, Whitney, what, when you're ahead, what are some of the essential dance movies that everyone should see? Um, I mean, apart from Esther Rogers and apart from the Step Up movies, which I, is kind of like number one and number two right yeah. there. Esther um, Rogers are the classy version. Yeah. Step Up is the sort of pop version mm. of, of today. However, if you do see Esther Rogers movies, I would recommend Top Hat. Yeah, uh, the Gate of Orsay, uh, mm. and I would actually—it's it's not their best movie, but I think it has one of their best dance routines in it. Roberta, oh, okay, it has a okay. really wonderful dance between uh, Esther and Rogers, which I just think is some of their best dance acting they've ever done. Yeah, well, I mean, the the point is they're dancing mm-hmm. in the Esther Rogers movies. The emotions and the story is communicated through the dancing. They, they prove that they're in mm-hmm. love to the audience by how well they dance together. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the best dancing in an Astaire Rogers movie is Swing Time. Uh, I wouldn't fight it's, it. It's not my favorite movie. Okay. It's, yeah. It, I mean, it, it also has The Way You Look Tonight, which is, you know, mm. one of the most goddamn romantic songs Absolutely in the world. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, it also, the, the big sort of showcase, show stopping dance numbers performed in blackface, and that's a little hard to get around. It's exceptionally hard to get yeah, around. Um, yeah. Oh, but let's see. Some other good dance movies. I'm trying to think of like a good. Let's, let's, let's talk about let's talk about two of the classics uh, that everyone knows. Uh, yeah. There's Dirty Dancing, the original Dirty Dancing, not the TV remake, um, mm. which is a bit more of like a conventional coming of age movie that has dance in it. However, yeah, well, it is this... very well acted, and um, it, it's actually surprisingly like has some like serious themes on its mind. Mm. Um, so there's a reason that one I think endures, even though elements of it have aged. Um, and then, of course, there's Footloose, uh, which is really cheesy and kind of over the top. It's about a town that is outlawed dancing, and mm. then Kevin Bacon comes in, and he really wants people to dance. Um, the movie, the original movie is really good. Um, it, it, it's cheesy. 
John Lithgow, I think, gives the best performance as the preacher who's trying to outlaw dancing because I think his son died. Maybe it's his daughter. So some, somebody died. One of his right? children died uh, in a dance-related uh, uh, accident. But no, it, um, it was it was in a car wreck after a, a dance. It was dance-related, as I said. Yeah. They weren't, didn't die dancing, but it was dance-adjacent. That's why they mm-hmm. outlawed dancing. Um, he's really, really good in it. The remake is also a lot of fun. Mm. Uh, I'd say they're about interchangeably I, I, good. I haven't seen the remake. Uh, there are a lot of – yeah, like – it's. I feel like there is a, a division between films that are about dancers and dancing, like Dirty Dancing, and films that are dance films. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to address the elephant in the yeah, room. Yeah. Which so are like, those two films, like Dirty Dancing. Although, yeah, it's about dancing. It's about teaching the characters how to dance. I feel like there's not like a showcase in mm-hmm. Dirty Dancing. There's a big dance at the yeah. end, but it's not. It's not the result of the climax. The you dancing won't blow you away, but the idea yeah. is that because it is set in the past, the dancing that is going on mm-hmm. blows the protagonist away because it is so flagrantly sexual in a way that she didn't yeah, think yeah. was possible. So I mean, it kind so, of rides so the line. Worse films like Center Stage, which is a, a, a cornball movie through and through, mm-hmm. is more purely a dance movie. It's about a bunch of ballet students who are trying to make it make it big in the world and realizing each of their individual dreams. And let's bring let's bring ballet downtown. I think is one of the, the actual lines of dialogue. Uh, but the entire climax of the film is this gigantic extended dance number where they kind of bring all of the themes together in yep. an interpretive dance. Corny, you bet. Oh, yeah. Enjoyable, you bet. It's great. Uh, <laughs> you know, watch something like Center Stage. Again, not a good film. I think it's, but they, it's a good dance movie. It's a good dance movie, and which I think, means I think it is a good film. We it talk, we talk about this kind, kind, of, kind of frequently about how you know filmmakers can choose between a dancer or an actor, and uh, if they choose an actor who can't dance so well. That's not going to be as good a movie as if you get a really good dancer who ne- can't necessarily act that well. I, I'll give some credit. There mm-hmm. are some actors who have done the work. Mm-hmm. They weren't dancers, but they were able to pull it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, some examples I've seen in the Step Up franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, Sharni Vinson from Step Up 3D was yeah. not a professional dancer. She did the work. Ryan Guzman from Step Up 4 and 5. Not originally a professional dancer. He did the work, and he's very convincing at it. Uh, some other examples. Baz Luhrmann's Strictly Ballroom. It's about ballroom dancing. Mm-hmm. It is very lush and over the top, much like you would imagine from the guy who directed Moulin Rouge. But it's like many steps removed from Moulin Rouge. It's like Moulin Rouge is at like a 12. Mm. This is at like a 7. Yeah. So it was like pretty over the top for the early 90s. But for Baz Luhrmann's filmography, it's actually his most normal film. <laughs> right. Um, but I love that movie. I think it is uh, – everything is heightened in a really beautiful way. And I, I think it's very mm. uh, tender, actually. I really, really like yeah. it a lot. Um, I, I really like um – uh, Magic Mike Double XL. I still haven't seen that one. Uh, the first Magic Mike was, it's like, ooh, it's going to be like a, a titillating ladies' night out. Wait a minute, this is all about economic disparity. What, what's going on here? Uh, well, Steven Soderbergh had other things on his mind. He, you know, had, he had the dancing in there, but it really was not the highlight of that movie. It was about how he didn't want to dance anymore. He wanted to be a carpenter and right. make chairs. Uh, Magic Mike Double XL was the movie that the first one promised to be. It was just <laughs> the theme of that movie is isn't it great to hang out with your friends and take off your shirt? Yeah, there's a, I, a scene where Joe Manganiello, uh, like they're they're on the road to like some big uh, dance convention in Las Vegas, and this is going to be like their last hurrah as male strippers. And Joe Manganiello gets out at a, like a truck stop, and he sort of admits to his friends, kind of tearfully i've I've lost my mojo man i just don't have it anymore <laughs> and they have to sort of like rally around no man you got it you're you look at you you look like joe manganiello you you got the best moves <laughs> in the world in fact you, th- 
you you go in there into that convenience store at this little gas station and you dance for the clerk and lo he does <laughs> like there's some like sexy music on and and she's like just completely nonplussed by this but he's like ripping his shirt off and getting bottles of water out and pouring it all over his body it's hilarious and enjoyable. It, it really has just the joy of dancing folded into it. I feel uh, I feel like that's the kind of movie that people perhaps erroneously either remember mm. or assume Saturday Night Fever is. Yeah. Because I think our cultural takeaway from Saturday Night Fever is John Travolta strutting to the Bee Gees, mm. John Travolta dancing to the Bee Gees. That's it. Yeah. Most people forget all your stuff in that movie. That movie is actually an, ex- an incredibly dark coming of age tale yeah. about a guy who makes some really terrible decisions. John Travolta is not playing a good person in that movie. No. He's no, an anti hero at best. And I'm not entirely sure I even am convinced mm. by his character turn at the end where he tries to be a better person. I think it ends mm. on a somewhat ambiguous note. Yeah. Um, well, but actually, I do think that's, I got that makes a, it a very good drama. But mm. for me, it's not a great dance movie because it's sometimes very unpleasant. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, if, if you want a better dance, like, in terms of just sheer dance, you have to go to, like, a piece of crap like Xanadu. Um, yeah, Xanadu has some fun dancing. Has some it's fun- cheesy and stupid, but it's it's, it's, oh, it's it's terrible. It's, yeah. like, a legit terrible movie. But, uh, yeah, it has some fun dances in it. Mm-hmm. Although, if, if, you, if you cast Olivia Newton-John, and she's going to dance, yeah. uh, have her dance on her own. Or have her dance with Michael Beck, who is not as good a dancer as she. Don't put her next to Gene fucking Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> together because it will only highlight that Gene Kelly, even as an old man, can still dance rings around Olivia Newton-John. Uh, which brings us to some, a lot of, a lot of the Gene Kelly movies people think of as dance movies I, were, I think are clearly more musicals. I would say yeah. that Sing in the Rain has arguably Gene Kelly's best dancing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also a musical. Yeah. Uh, it's also, uh, it's always Fair Weather, uh, which is really, really delightful. And he does a sequence in that movie on roller skates that is as, like, death-defying and crazy as Mad Max Fury Road. Like, I watch this and I'm like, holy shit, he's just, they're not cutting away from it. He's just doing mm. all of these things. And, like, man, if he's off by, like, a fraction of an inch, he just eats it on the mm. pavement, blows out his knee, and his whole career is ruined. Mm. Like, it's easy to forget just how complicated some of the things the people in dance movies do. There are also some really, really great dance movies that don't have amazing dancing in it. Uh, one movie that we covered a long time ago when we were combining Critically Acclaimed and uh, The Two Shot, back when The Two Shot was a thing, mm. uh, is a Japanese film called uh, Shall We Dance? Mm. Not to be confused with the Ginger Rogers Fred Astaire movie. Or the Richard Gere remake of the Japanese movie. That movie is absolutely beautiful mm. in how it illustrates how dance can really... Uh, allow someone who has not had an opportunity to express themselves to finally do so, even in sort of small microcosms. Mm. Um, and I would consider that as good a movie as anything that came out in the 90s. Mm. Like, it's just a really, really lovely film. Um, I feel like we should move on, but I, there's tons there's, of stuff there's, out there. A lot there's a lot there, of fun, yeah. like, coming-of-age ones, like Save the Last Dance is, is good. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think what else. And of course uh, you recommend all the step up movies. Mm. They're just unabashedly uh, embracing the genre and what it does. And, or or um, if, if you're looking for something a little classier, you could try Vim Vendor's Pina. Uh, that's, oh yeah, uh, I didn't a, see a that. Ballet film. Very well. It was shot in 3D. Evidently the 3D was really, really great, but didn't see it in 3D. Nor did I. What else? I never saw The Turning Point. I heard that was really, really good. Um, Hairspray is a wonderful dance movie. 
the original but, Hairspray, but, but, not the musical. Like, pop, pop teen dancing. Uh, yeah, well, it's, like, it's got that dirty dancing kind of vibe where it's kind of risque and crazy for the era in which it is set. But John Waters has such a wonderful affection mm. for weird 50s yeah. music and weird 50s well, it's, culture. It's early 60s. Is it early yeah, 60s? Yeah. I remember you wrong. But regardless, he's got such an affection for this weird era and popular culture that the original film, nothing else plays quite like mm. it. It's, it's really, really great. Right. Um, so yeah, hopefully that gets you started on your journey. But even, like seriously, watch even some of the ones that look crappy. Every once in a while I'll be like, wow, that was really good dancing in that. Holy shit. Hmm. So anyway, thank right. you for uh, thank you for writing in. That's right. hopefully that that helps. Yeah, well, glad we, uh, here's a letter from Anthony. Hello, Anthony. Hello. Um, greetings, Bruce and Brandon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? Okay, which one of us is Bruce and which one of us is Brandon? I think you're a Bruce. I'm a Bruce I for sure. Yeah. Good day, Bruce. Um, okay. I hope you gents are keeping safe and healthy during these challenging times. I think your critically acclaimed viewing club is a fantastic idea. Oh, thank you. And I hope that's uh, hope that's it's something you'll consider continuing to do after the lockdown ends. If there's been any upside to your current situation, it's that people have dug into back catalogs and film vaults mm-hmm. to unvol- unearth old movies that they've never seen. I uh, hope that's what you guys are doing. This is a great time for it. Yeah. Um, perusing online discussions has revealed how obsessed people can be about playing with the newest Chinese toys, even when they're perfectly good and even great ones lying around collecting dust. I'm a big fan of delving into films from the past and hope that others have discovered the wealth of great cinema that's waiting for them. Get the Criterion Channel. Get the Criterion Channel. I was I was watch, uh, I was get, looking get, at get Night Flight and between those two uh, uh, and actually and, and the, it's free uh, but 2B TV is a lot two, of fun weird TV stuff on it. has a lot of really like a pretty hard to find. Yeah. Like stuff I never that's actually never been released on home video. They actually have on Tubi and it looks you, pretty good. You will watch a wonderful just overabundance of strange challenging artistic grand films many of which you probably haven't even heard of. Yeah. This is the time to do that. Uh, night flight. Seriously, night flight. <laughs> Nobody listens to me when I say night flight. Um, in terms of your recent choice of Fist of Fury, I was a bit torn. On the one hand, I welcome any discussion about Bruce Lee because his action films are legendary and with good reason. Mm-hmm. I also have a personal connection to his films because, according to my mother, she brought me to see Enter the Dragon in 1974 for my very first foray to the cinema. Wow! Uh, this would have been uh, cool. just before my family moved from Hong Kong, so I would have been around four years old at the time. I remember nothing about the experience, but uh, have since revisited the film on a number of occasions, and I, as I have with Lee's other action movies. So while I loved hearing your conversation about Fist of Fury, I was slightly disappointed that one of the lesser-known Chinese action films from 2B TV, such as Wolf Warrior, didn't get selected. Mm. I bring this up, this particular title up, because it demonstrates something that I believe you find gents have only touched upon briefly in your many film discussions, and that is jingoism in foreign cinema. Yeah. Wolf Warrior is a Chinese state-supported action movie. It's really easy to tell that it is backed by the mainland government because it glorifies the Chinese armed forces and features enough actual military hardware to give Michael Bay a happy ending. <laughs> uh, Wolf Warrior's plot concerns a drug lord sending a band of foreign mercenaries into China to take out Chinese soldiers on a training exercise led by B-Boomy action star Scott Adkins. <laughs> oh my god. The mercenaries are teeth-gnashing cardboard cutouts disguised as characters whose sole function is to threaten the lives of Chinese patriots. Uh, should anyone have any doubts about the intentions of this film, just try counting the number of minutes between the appearances of China's national flag. <laughs> uh, if that's not enough, I direct you to close-ups of the arm patch that the Chinese soldiers wear, which reads in English, I fight for China. <laughs> <laughs> I want to characterize all films made for Chinese consumption as being contests for measuring male protuberances, that, and that is, as that is categorically untrue. Non-Chinese characters are not always painted as the two-dimensional villains, but they are just... Just in, 
just that in many of the current blockbusters made for the mainland market. Chinese cinema is probably going through the phase that Hollywood did a few decades back when films like Missing in Action and Rambo First Blood Part 2 were being greenlit without anyone batting an eyelash. Now that cinema from other countries is churning out jingoistic movies, uh, we get to see what chest-pounding looks like when someone else other than John J. Rambo does it. Uh, just curious if you gents have any thoughts about jingoism from foreign films. On the topic of Rambo, I stumbled across something that uh, there wasn't sure if you were aware of. When I read the Wikipedia entry for Rambo Last Blood, I noticed that the critical reception section quoted both William from Bloody Disgusting and Rockmeister from IGN. <laughs> yeah. We both hated that movie. I don't think it's a good movie on top of being racist. Like, yeah, it's just yeah, a badly yeah. made film. I don't know if this is the only instance where both of you fine gentlemen were quoted for reviews from separate outlets in the same way. Wikipedia entry, but I think that's pretty darn cool, so congrats. It's the only one I've run into yeah, yeah. where that's happened. Um, uh, is that think, the uh, he says, thanks so much for continuing to produce such excellent content. Warmest regards, Anthony. Um, okay, that's a really great uh, email, and thank you for your perspective on that. And it's actually really difficult sometimes for uh, critics from one culture to discuss issues like jingoism uh, in films from other cultures because we're not really deeply immersed in those cultures and it's hard to say what is atypical, what mm. is considered over the top in its patriotism, for example, um, and maybe even we're missing a point altogether uh, sometimes. Mm. Um, I think that Fist of Fury definitely has a political side it is taking. It is very, very mm. much pro-Chinese and anti-imperialist uh, Japan, and yeah. and for that matter, anti-Western uh, mm. encroachment mm. Uh, uh, into Asia in general. Um, I've seen a lot of kung fu movies that handle that approach, mm. um, and I didn't think maybe Fist of Fury was the most egregious example of it. Uh, the one that always comes to mind, and I know the director has disputed this, but when you watch the film, it's kind of hard not to imagine mm. that there was some general idea that this was what people wanted to see. But uh, Zhang Yimou's Hero. Okay, yeah. Uh, really, uh, incredibly, one of the most beautifully photographed films of like the mm. 2000s. I think we came out in like 2000, 2002. Mm. 2002. Um not not Zheng Yimou's best, but a good film. No, but a gorgeous motion picture. And at the time, it was considered this, like, oh, my God, like, next level mm. uh, uh, good uh, kung fu movie. Uh, which, A, has amazing kung fu sequences. B, has incredible, uh, just the color and palette of the movie in general is gorgeous. The, the framing is gorgeous. Mm. Everything about this movie is about as good as any kung fu mm. movie has ever looked. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of a Rashomon story mm. about a plot to overthrow the emperor. But when the movie finally reveals its overall point and message, its message is so arguably pro-fascism <laughs> or at the very least pro this this kind of like super state. Mm -hmm. um, that it, I actually remember seeing it and like having trouble dealing with it because it was so against what like any American movie would make a point about this. Like any American action movie would probably have a hard time selling this as the final message of the film. So it was a real jarring experience, and I know a lot of people have said that that's Zhang Yimou trying to cater to a certain market. Mm -hmm. Zhang Yimou has apparently said that he doesn't consider the film political at all. I rather doubt that. I think Zhang Yimou is a very intelligent filmmaker who might be trying to stay out of controversy. Um, but, yeah, it's a weird 
final tone for a movie that really didn't seem to be about mm-hmm. that message until the last couple of minutes. Yeah, I, I saw a film pretty recently. It's from the country of Georgia, and it's mm-hmm. called And Then They Danced. Oh, yeah. Uh, or, excuse me, And Then We Danced. Yeah. And uh, and Then We Danced was about uh, a dance a dance troupe that, was, that specialized uh, specifically in Georgian folk dancing. And there was a lot of talk in that movie about the specificity of the Georgian national character. Mm-hmm. Now, it's also a queer romance, and it's also about dancing, and it's also about ambition, so there are a lot of things that any human can relate to, but I don't understand what a Georgian citizen would think about the Georgian national character. Yeah. Uh, that means nothing to me, because I'm not Georgian. Yeah. Uh, but I can understand... I understood where it was dramatically, and I feel like watching that movie, I understand at least from the character of these kind of repressive uh, government figures, what the Georgian national character should look like. Yeah. Uh, as for, like, actual militant jingoism, I'm trying to think of well, things that are, like... When you think about, like, when you think about how, the... How, like, he, here's the thing about uh, jingoism and patriotism. Yeah. Patriotism is anti-art. Uh, it is. It is. It's a bold it is, statement. It is like the, a black hole of aesthetics. There is nothing beautiful... Just aesthetically about patriotism. I think what you're trying to get at, because I think uh, you're saying it in a very confrontational way. Absolutely. And I, think need, yeah. well, I think we need to be clear about it right. because we, we, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but I do think it's important to get to a little bit more nuance. Um, when everything that you're telling in your story, every element of your story, every character in your story, every mm. image in your story, uh, has only one message and interest in mind, and mm. everything needs to support that interest. And, and it is at best, beca- it at best becomes boring, mm. and at worst, it becomes condescending and shitty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there are plenty of movies, and we're, let's just focus on America for a second. There are plenty of movies that are about yay America that mm. are very good. There's also way more that are frankly unconvincing because it feels like we're being performative. And yeah. that's something that I always worry about when we like, because America, one of our biggest exports is movies. Mm. Because it's not just a product that you consume and then don't think about. It's full of ideas. And many of them are very much American ideas that are being pitched. Mm-hmm. So when you see Michael Bay's Transformers movies, a lot of them have his ideas or ideas that he thinks his target demographic will accept his target demographic of rah rah Americans. Um, and yeah, I think that's very insidious and I think it's very disingenuous and I don't think it actually speaks to the national character. It's what certain people want to present as the national character because mm. it seems strong. Yeah. yeah and and uh, I don't buy it. In in America, you know, when you, when when we think of like American jingoistic movies, we think of military movies because Mostly. that's that's been a, a big uh, sort of advertising tie-in for the American national characters, the strength of the American military. Yeah. So a lot of the most, quote, patriotic movies are going to have a lot of guns in them. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be something like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which has nary a single gunshot. Um, well, it, not in the director's cut. <laughs> <laughs> the original deleted ending. <laughs> it's a bloodbath. It just whips out two Tommy guns and lays waste to Congress. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, films that are sort of a little bit more about the strength of American institutions like government mm-hmm. or the strength of, say, our criminal justice system like Twelve Angry Men. Yeah. I'd say that's a very patriotic movie because it really 
I think sell, if you if it gets you, sells you on the idea of how important it is to do your civic duty, yeah, and to actually you know judge crimes as you know as a peer of of you know another citizen. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are are very very patriotic movies, but those don't really get listed when you're talking about patriotic movies. That's a good point. The, one, yeah. the other the ones the other ones that you think about getting listed as patriotic mm-hmm. movies are these sort of fawning biopics. Oh, um, like the great American hero. Yeah, like there's of. a really good movie, but it's clearly done with a very much like pro-America around the era of World War II, you know, mm. American jingoism. Uh, but there's a really good John Ford movie called Young Mr. Lincoln. Mm. stars Henry uh, Fonda as young, young Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln yeah. And he is the, – the whole movie takes place before he becomes president. And it's just back when Abraham Lincoln was a lawyer, he defended someone in a murder trial. And it was a very interesting trial. That's it. Hmm. However, that would be enough for a movie. And it's a good, like, legal thriller. Henry Fonda's really, really great in it. Hmm. But then there are these weird bits where they're just trying to force Americana into Hmm. it. Like, there's a bit where, like, Abraham Lincoln is just, like, riding a horse Hmm. through a leafy glade or whatever. And he's got, like, one of those little mouth organs. And he's just, like, bam, bam, bam. But he actually ends up riding Dixie. Like, that's pretty good. I should write that down. He didn't write that song. It doesn't get much more American than Abraham Lincoln. You don't need to add more shit. You know, that would be like if they invented the George Washington chopping down a cherry tree. I cannot tell a lie. Now. Right. Now we'd call bullshit on that. Like, it's ridiculous. So. It can be very hard to accept, but the more you are enmeshed in the culture, the more you know when it's being disingenuous. And so sometimes it's hard for film critics to discuss these issues uh, about cultures that we are not a part of. And mm. uh, if we didn't do our due diligence and didn't discuss it enough as it pertained to Fist of Fury, that is actually a very serious critique. Mm. I take that seriously. I will attempt to do better in the future. Yeah, yeah. Um, but putting, I mean, a big part of our job is finding context for films. Yeah. and. Uh, uh, I was really, really astonished that the film District Nine was such a hit in America. Oh yeah, it's very um, be- South because African because it, it is one. It's like one hundred and ten percent South African. In fact, uh, all all of uh, that director's films, Neil Blumkamp is his name, mm-hmm. are are very very strongly. Well, maybe not Elysium, but the other two uh, pertain very strongly to the South African national character. Yeah, uh, even though they're these kind of like special effects driven high octane well, thrillers. They're the indictments part, yeah. of apartheid, and yeah. good they should. Yeah. Be indictments about apartheid. Apartheid was mm. awful, but yeah, it is weird that I feel like a lot of audiences didn't really think too hard about the apartheid parallels. Mm. They probably had a general sense of it. Maybe I hope at least, but I feel like they just thought, "What an interesting idea for a movie," and maybe mm. they weren't really thinking about how this is an extremely on the nose allegory this is like for a, apartheid. A hugely political movie. Yeah, I oh somebody recently said. Uh, because we get accused of this, you know, mm. once every couple of weeks. You know, yeah. you should keep you should weeks keep, every couple of days. Uh, you should keep politics out of your reviews. Yeah. You should review non-political films. And someone said, "Well, why don't why can't people review non-political films like Watchmen and V for Vendetta? Like two of the most aggressively political movies from that genre." Yeah, like it uh, doesn't get much more political in the superhero genre. Yeah. Then V for Vendetta, which is literally about an anarchist trying to take down a corrupt government, mm. 
and the Watchmen, which is literally which about, is about like American exceptionalism, uh, and, and and Nixon Vietnam is still and, in yeah, office, and so the fucking, Vietnam War. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. like these are like super political movies. They're super political. The, mm. the other thing I think is interesting to point out that I just want to bring it up quickly because I, I want to move on. Mm. Um, there's a lot of political movies that have been around, and their tropes have been around mm. for so long that we might not really consider them political anymore. Mm-hmm. Case in point, something like James Cameron's Avatar. Mm. Which is very much about the evils of colonialism oh, yeah, yeah. and and you know, obviously right on its surface yeah, right exactly. There, but yeah. I think that story has been told for so long and so many different times that it just doesn't have an edge to it. Yeah, and a lot of audiences. Not that it. Mm. L- l- let me take that back. I think it has an edge to it, but I think it's something that a lot of audiences can sort of take for granted mm. and not think about too much, just because they've seen so many different versions of it. Yeah. This isn't just like in your face with its messaging. You can kind of write it off as a trope of the genre, which is one of the reasons why I don't think the movie really has that great an impact. Mm. When you, we say that that movie is a lot like Dances with Wolves or The Smurfs, we're not just pointing out similarities. We're pointing out that it's kind of lost some of its power because, because of how yeah, familiar it is. Right, right. It's the, the whole yeah. white man goes native. Narrative. Yeah, it's, it's, a lot of, a lot of it's awkward and even even yeah. in in the best of films that use it. So yeah, hmm. and yeah. Anyway. anyway, we should move on. All right, uh, here's a letter from Carlos. Hi, Carlos. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. Hello, hello. Uh, I hope you're doing well during this difficult time. Thank you. Uh, you you as well. We're holding together. I hope you're I hope you're holding be- together better than we are. Please. Um, your shows have been helping me out a lot while I've been social distancing, and I'm grateful for that. I was scrolling through the TCM app. Mm. And I found this movie called No Blade of Grass. I remember the title because oh, the yeah. Criterion Channel had a playlist of 70s pre-Star Wars sci-fi movies, and it was the only one I didn't get around to watching. I started it without knowing what it was about. Oof, a movie about famine that freaks out the entire world definitely wasn't a great way to help my morale. <laughs> this leads to my question. Have you ever blindly seen a film that ended up being relevant to your life? Uh, it doesn't have to be depressing like mine. Hopefully you two are able to come up with happier ones. Uh, thank you for being wonderful. Carlos. That's an interesting um, question. Yeah, geez. I'm trying to think now. I'm not sure if there's something that kind of blinds... You've brought you brought up, in fact, just recently um, how A Monster Calls kind of came into your life at just the right time. Yeah, I had recently uh, uh, started moving on from the grieving period uh, after my father died, and Monster Calls is all about mm-hmm. uh, a child dealing with complex... Uh, ideas and emotions and thoughts revolving the grieving process. Mm-hmm. And... Um, a lot of what I had gone through was articulated so well in a monster calls that I felt extremely seen mm. and I cried my eyes out at that wow. movie. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a good example. Mm. I mean, it was, it's sad, but in a good way. Cause I think it had its heart in the right place. Yeah. It's yeah. like every once in a while, like when something really crazy and big happens in your life, a movie can get you in a surprising way. Like, I, not, there's hardly anything in the Alexander Payne movie Nebraska mm-hmm. that has any parallel with my life. Like, okay. at all. Yeah, yeah. And yet, when I got out of the theater, I managed to make it into my car and close the door before I burst out into the ugliest cry. Because Aww. the issue of connecting with your father and having troubles... Uh, uh, you know, seeing eye to eye and everything the movie brought up mm. just was enough for me that day to just completely collapse. But, um, anyway, well, I'm trying to think of more positive examples though. Mm. I saw Scream 4. <laughs> and, uh, I've taught, I mentioned this a few times. It's really fucking weird. Um, so Scream 4, it's, it's pretty good. It's not my favorite film in the in the franchise. It's actually probably my least favorite, but it's still really, really good. Uh, Rory Culkin plays a teenaged uh, uh, film enthusiast mm. who looks uncannily like I looked in high school. 
Like, I could show you pictures of me in high school and you would think it is Rory Culkin's, like, test shots in costume for Scream 4. He had my hair, he wore, he dressed like I did. And he was obsessed with movies in the same sort of way. He was. It was just, and yeah, it really quite eerie. And uh, Rory, I hate to break this to you, uh, you're, if you're anything like me, you're going to lose a lot of that hair. So enjoy it while you can. <laughs> you're going to lose a lot of that hair. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about you? Go, 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 tell me more about you. Because um, sometimes these movies just—it's mm. interesting because we think about them. This question asks us to remember what we thought before we saw them, and usually after yeah. we see them, they become a part of us. I suppose so. Um, It's—it's it, it's difficult to yeah to find something that was like that really hit me at the time. Like I realized yeah. this is me. Like I see myself in this. It's yeah. It's one of those things where it's like three years later. I'm still thinking about yeah. sort of this this film and the way it kind of informed the way I think about other things. Like Terrence Malick's films do that. The way I think about sort of the universe and religion and God. It kind go. of kind of put things in a, a a bit of a broader, perhaps different perspective that I hadn't previously had, and it mm. kind of codified a lot of things in my brain uh, about faith. Um, Uh, Gregoraki's Splendor. Okay, I should another one. <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, Kathleen Robertson. Robinson starts uh, dating kind of a, a a safe, kind dude who's really kind of a, a a little bit prudish, but really nice. And at the same time, also starts dating this really kind of dummy lout, but he's just a dynamite in the sack. And because it's a Gregoraki film, of course, it'll eventually be about a thruple, about how she starts <laughs> dating, dating these two guys at the same time, and they just have threesomes on the regular. Uh, yeah, that, that was a big part of my sexuality. There you <laughs> yeah. go. It's like, you, yeah, that, there, oh my goodness, Jonathan Shiak and that other dude and Kathleen Robin. Mm. Okay. <laughs> We've lost Whitney. I'll, I'll stop now. <laughs> uh, I'll, be, I'll come up with one more. It's a TV mm. show, but it's a good one. Um, mm. I was raised by two educators. Mm. Uh, my mom was a teacher and then later a vice principal. And my dad was a teacher before I was born. Mm. And around the time I was born, he became an administrator. And I grew up very much, you know, around the behind the scenes at various public schools, you mm. know, just because my parents had meetings and I went to, the, you know, I was with them after school, etc. So I knew what actually running a school was like and I knew what actually being a teacher was like. And I knew that almost every movie or TV show I'd ever seen about a teacher mm. was Bullshit. That's <laughs> well, just not how the gig works. That's that's an issue I've actually had with a lot of uh, films about young people or just yeah. people my own age. Uh, I was persistently insulted, just consistently, over and over and again, by the way kids my age were depicted in movies and their school experience yeah. and we related to one another. It's like I don't know what these creatures are. Yeah, it's always it's always made by forty year olds who are either trying mm. to figure out what their teenage kids are, are thinking mm. about or vaguely remembering what their high school was like and rewriting it to suit their current needs. And that's yeah. well and, and not even right. the, even the ones that you know were made by enterprising younger people who are a little bit more in my age bracket and were thinking to write a film about their school experience didn't get mine. Yeah. I, I had I, a bit of a unique school experience. I had a bit of a unique uh, theater experience growing up. I, had, I, I did not relate to the Gorgons that I constantly saw in teenage <laughs> form up on those movie screens. I hear you. So uh, the the one movie or TV show that I have seen mm. that absolutely gets it, that is absolutely mm. almost to a T accurately depicted what it is like working at a public school is the fourth season of The Wire. <laughs> Every season of The Wire is about uh, various elements of... Um, Mm -hmm. 
uh, the life and culture in Baltimore, mostly through the perspective of crime. First season, every season is a bit is a different focus. Mm-hmm. First season is very much about the drug trade, which permeates throughout the entire uh, series, but uh, different seasons are about different things. And the fourth season uh, involves a character mm-hmm. who leaves the police force and decides to become a teacher. And mm-hmm. while everything else is going on, all the crimes and mm-hmm. misdemeanors and everything, um, he is just adjusting to working at a public school in an incredibly large urban area where a bunch of the students are... either connected to or at the very least forced in the same classroom uh, with criminality and how very, very different that is from our sort of milk toast Mm. sitcom perspective of what we think going to school is like. Mm. The Wire is intensively well-researched like in every single season, but they really brought their A-game for that fourth season because... That was on the nose. They, that was they, like they I wanted was, to get that. That part, was like right, going. Yeah. I mean, it's it's Baltimore and not Los Angeles, but mm. that was basically like following my parents around after school. Like, it was <laughs> nice. just everything was mm. right on the money. It's really incredible. Yeah, I feel like when when it comes to depicting sort of the school experience accurately, one of the the closest I've seen is South Park. Uh, just the the way how kids can be crass and yeah. get weird ideas about stuff. Yeah, uh, I feel like that really nailed a particular ethos of well, for the first couple of seasons anyway, mm-hmm. of a kid's experience better than anything that was like about actual kids. Yeah, fair enough. Let's move on. All right, here's a letter from CW. Hi, CW. Who um, are you, CW Stone King? <gasps> The, uh, he's he's an Australian blues musician that I'm a big fan of. Oh, that's uh, cool. Yeah. Um, hey, Bibbs and Rockmeister, huge fan of all your content. Back catalog of Cancel Too Soon have been getting me through this COVID-19 debacle. Uh, my question for you today is simple. Do you have a favorite funny line or exchange from a movie or TV show that you cannot for the life of you remember where it is from? <laughs> Mine is the exchange. Uh, character one, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Character two, eight. There are eight ways to skin a cat. <laughs> <laughs> sounds familiar. That does sound familiar. It sounds Dan Aykroyd-ish. That, it sounds like it's from. Uh, it reminds me of that line from Vampire in Brooklyn, mm. where someone says the closest, way, the best way to a woman's heart is through her stomach, and he says, "Actually, it's the rib cage, but that's messy." Yeah. <laughs> uh, it tickles me every time I think of it. I cannot remember what it's from or who said it. Do you have any favorite lines? You can't remember where they come from, or do you remember the exchange above? And can you help me out? Either, th- either way, thanks for all you do. Love me some critically acclaimed. Sincerely, CW. Um, there are eight ways to swim again. That one. It's not coming to me. I will try to think Eight of it, and if I think about it, I'll tweet it. A cat. Uh, here's here's. I don't actually typically have like big exchanges like that mm. that baffle me. What I have are very specific line deliveries mm. because that's something you can't Google. Yeah, yeah, like you can't like one of my. I know this one, but one of my favorite line deliveries, and I use it all the time, mm. is the way Robert Redford says the word "cute" in the movie Sneakers. Oh, oh, just cute. cute. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's like, it's very, very sarcastic, a little, right? a little yeah. snide, but, yeah. but also that is funny. You know, it's cute. Yeah. It's not the time for it, but so I use that a lot. There's one that for whatever reason, I've been thinking about a lot lately. And I think it might be Tom Hanks who says it in a movie, but it's someone like that. Mm. And he's talking to, I believe his wife or his girlfriend. And he says, you're right. You're always right. I don't know why. I don't know what that's from. I thought it was from the Burbs, and then I rewatched the Burbs, and it's not in there. Hmm. I don't know what the fuck that is. Yeah, yeah. I, I just—it's in my head every time 
I'm having a conversation with someone who's like in my family Mm -hmm. and they were right about something and I was wrong. That's exactly the way I say that. And I never remember what goddamn film it's from. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's from a film. I'm 98% sure it's from a film and not a TV show. Just have no uh, idea. Yeah, night, night, eight ways to skin a cat. I, for some reason, I'm picturing Dan Aykroyd saying that. Yeah, uh, and so, so here it's from Doctor Detroit. I don't actually know, but that's my guess. Uh, <laughs> uh, because something's got to be from Doctor Detroit, right? Uh, <laughs> no, th- there are a lot of exchanges that always crack me up. Uh, no matter how many times I've seen a movie, every time I think of a certain line reading, it always makes me giggle, giggle a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bit in the critic. And my wife knows this one, so she'll tease me about it. But um, there was a joke where it was about uh, Siskel and Ebert and how they had split up. And they said uh, several oh. ne- several networks are doing uh, TV movies based on the split up. Here is a clip from the Fox version. And they cut to a bunch of young people in a living room and they just go, booty, booty, booty. Yeah, boy. <laughs> I can't even do it without laughing. Uh, the other one is um, when uh, in Wayne's World when Garth is playing with Mr. Donut Head Man. <laughs> hey, hey, hey Mr. Donut Man, Head Man, who's trying to kill you? Uh, I don't know, but the better not. Uh, and then he ends up just like stabbing it. And the oh, go, oh, go, God. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, oh, God. I'm not happy. Oh, no. <laughs> that's actually funny enough. That's actually one that I had trouble with for a long time. That sort of, oh, oh no. Oh, oh God. Like yeah. that exact delivery of that. Hmm. That's actually one I had trouble with for a long time when you write it from Wayne's World. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so those, those are the ones that really trouble me because yeah. I don't know if I'll ever find them again. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, I find out they're from an obscure episode of MST3K. Yeah. yeah you know, just because happen. there's constant quips like throughout and like, oh, it was from mm. Monster Go-Go. Who knew? No. Um, but uh, yeah. So I, I'm with you. I will try to think of that cat skinning line. It really does sound familiar. Mm. But I'm, yeah, it's not coming to me. And yeah. if anyone knows where my, I think, Tom Hanks line comes from, mm. I would love to hear about it. Mm. Please tweet me at William Bibiani mm. if you know where that's from. Mm. You would give me such peace of mind. Oh, gosh. The, you're always right. You're always right. I think it's a big mistake. That's from Blazing Saddles. Yeah, that's a different one. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, here's another letter. Well, uh, it maybe comes it's from Blazing Saddles. I think so. I'll have to look into it. All right. Uh, okay. Here's a letter from Anonymous Twenty Five. So, oh, so you did like early shape note stuff. Mm. Uh, hello, no- Anonymous Twenty Five. Um, hello, Bibbs and Whitney, aka Rockmeister McCool. Uh, why do you guys think that Ernst Lubitsch is not talked about much? It's only been a couple of years since I discovered the movies of Ernst Lubitsch, and I appreciate them more and more as I go through his filmography. His movies are so funny while being about subjects like sex, relationship, class divides, etc. He did astounding films from the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, For example, Trouble in Paradise. Every scene is filled with fun, witty dialogue. It's one of the best comedies ever made. I'm just Mm going to put that right there. It's not even my Um, favorite Ernst Lubitsch comedy, and I would agree with that. It has a love triangle plot, which is more about sex than love, actually, but a sex triangle plot sounds like something else, uh, in which two thieves who are sexually attracted to each other's ability to Steel. It was released in 1932, and it seems to me, uh, to be fair, there's still a lot I haven't seen that it influenced a lot of what came after. Yep. Uh, Billy Wilder, for example, has four films in the AFI Top 100 Films list. All four were undeniably great and important, but Billy Wilder great, was greatly influenced by Lubitsch, and I would argue that you could take at least one of his films from the list and add Trouble in Paradise, or To Be or Not to Be, as much as I like some like It Hot. Well... I'd pull that one out. Uh, the apartment, <laughs> is, the apartment is the one that remains uh, one of Lub- uh, reminds one of Lubitsch the most. Just, yeah. uh, just between us, I love the apartment too. Uh, 
I, I love the apartment too much. And if the AFI is listening to your podcast, I hope they don't touch that one. Uh, anyway, uh, I wrote more than I intended. What do you guys think? Thanks for all the content. These quarantine days are going slow, and you guys are making it much better. Your fan, uh, Anonymous25. Okay. Uh, the question – the main question at hand is uh, why don't people talk about Ernst Lubitsch more? Mm-hmm. Because people aren't talking about Ernst Lubitsch more. And I don't mean – Everyone, like just just random people on the internet. I mean, people mm. who actually write about film for a living. Mm. There is an enormous and frustrating, and I think irresponsible tendency to just not. I understand that like articles about Ernst Lubitsch movies might not be seen as a huge draw for a lot of publications. But mm. I, what I think is even worse than not writing about. Here's why Trouble in Paradise is one of the best comedies ever, mm. which I would argue is even better than uh, uh, not Trouble in Paradise, uh, Design for Living. I think Design oh, for Design Living is for even living. better okay. than Trouble in Paradise. Sorry. Okay. Um, wh- why is Design for Living even better than Trouble in Paradise? Try pitching that article. Mm. <laughs> There's not a lot of publications I'll give it to you, and the ones that will probably don't have money. Like it's just not <laughs> something that gets picked up the way yeah. that like well, I saw Terminator for the first time, and it's really 80s. Mm. That's an article I read today. That was a terrible article. It's, it was, of course, it was, really, it was made in 1984. I know, but 80s. like I know, it was ridiculous. It was like there was no commentary on it that was meaningful. It wasn't even like I'm from a new generation and these parts of it no longer speak to me. Hmm. That's a valid conversation, and we can have that. This was just I never saw Terminator before. I'm going to spend five uh, paragraphs talking about the other Terminator movies I have seen, and three paragraphs talking about why this one was from the 80s. No. Mm. There's all these decades, if not almost like an entire century of film history that is going almost completely uh, uh, overlooked. And you, you don't realize even that's, that's, that's our generation's fault. A lot of it like, is. Like guys our age kind of vaunted uh, the 1980s to a degree where everything, essentially everything before Star Wars was wiped out. Well, I think that there's a couple of reasons for mm. that. Uh Partially because uh, in the 1980s, we started having uh, movie channels on cable. We started having home video. And then, of course, streaming followed afterwards. And the recency bias, which is sort of natural in -hmm. people, and I I don't think it's inherently evil. Mm -hmm. uh, But it's something we do need to fight to overcome when we have conversations about art. Uh, Recency bias became something that people could indulge in without thinking about it. As Mm -hmm. opposed to, we have to watch whatever movie happens to be on one of the four channels we have. And if it's old, we will watch old movies. Mm -hmm. And we'll get used to them. A lot of people didn't grow up watching those older movies because they weren't what was regularly available the way they were in previous generations. Mm -hmm. And as a result, a lot of movies that had been kept pretty consistently alive started falling by the wayside to the point that most people can't name more than a couple of movies from the 1930s nowadays. Mm -hmm. So I think it is the responsibility of every film pundit, every film critic, every person who writes about the industry to at the very least... Reference, remember, bring up when it is relevant, when it is in context, mm-hmm. older movies so that they stay part of the conversation and people remember Ernst Lubitsch was important. Ernst Lubitsch was not an obscure filmmaker. No, if, in fact, uh, he's he he was cited as uh, uh, very frequently by other filmmakers as having the Lubitsch touch. Yeah, in that like, he had this sort of like magical skill where he could make just any film he touched sing. Yeah, uh, Billy Wilder, I think it was Billy Wilder, had uh, what would Lubitsch do? Over uh, a doorway, the yeah. doorway to his office. Enormously influential. His mm. movies, a lot of his movies, made tons of money. This would be like, this would be like, imagine if you will, because mm. Ernst Lubitsch made movies until the late forties. 
So that's about 70 years from now. Imagine in 2090, let's say film is still around in some form that we recognize. Mm. I hope it is. And people have almost completely forgotten about Judd Apatow. <laughs> now, I don't think Judd Apatow is as good a filmmaker as Ernst Lubitsch, but he was an enormous mm. figure in comedy for like the last 20 years of cinema. Either not, And he didn't even make that many movies, but he influenced that many movies. And his movies that he made, for the most part, were these huge hits. Mm. It would be weird to think that someone who made blockbuster movies would be so completely overlooked by future generations and almost forgotten. A lot of us like to think that the movies that we grew up with will remain important mm-hmm. later on. That is not the case. Oh, goodness, no. Things fall by the wayside. Things stop seeming relevant to future generations. Things stop becoming available. This is one of the reasons why we complain that as we rely more and more on streaming services, that older movies are not as available. They need to be available so people can find them. Yeah. Yeah, it's... uh, Availability is a big part of it. Uh, When we talk about, for instance, uh, Warner Brothers shorts, Warner Brothers, like, Bugs Bunny cartoons... Uh, from like the termite terrace era, we, we're usually thinking about like maybe a handful of ten, and they're all directed by Chuck Jones. Now, yeah. those Chuck Jones films are great. I would never impugn Drip Along Daffy. Uh, in fact, I, I might even put Drip Along Daffy as like one of the fifty best films ever made. And it's like one of one of the. <laughs> I, I love you okay, so much. Okay, it's maybe, not on my list, but okay. Maybe Duckamuck. Okay. Okay. Duckamuck. Yes. Okay. Duckamuck. <laughs> Duckamuck. One Froggy Evenings and, and, and the Memento uh, Boys at Dover. You. Those are my top three. <laughs> and, and what's like, Opera Doc? Yeah. Um, Even what's Opera Doc? Those are my, my top three are my top three. Like, yeah, that's just it. There yeah. are other Looney Tunes and then there are Pimento, those three. Good old Pimento you. Good old P you. <laughs> yeah, the, the, those Chuck Jones shorts are wonderful, but what about Robert McKimson? What about yeah. Bob Clampett? What about Tex Avery? And there's all this whole stable of people who are making the, like all of these really wonderful cartoons that, you know, they're just as good as Chuck Jones, if not better in some cases. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people come to Bob Clampett's defense pretty often. Oh, Bob, Bob Clampett was a maniac. <laughs> Bob Clampett, like, just you look at, like, the inter like the interstitial animations of Bob Clampett's cartoon. Yeah, they just don't even link up. It's just... Yeah. Usually... Da- Daffy, he did, uh, like, the Great Piggy Bank Robbery. He did the uh, the Gremlin cartoon. Oh, that was yeah. When you think about animation, we tend to think about fluid movement, about how each frame that is painted or drawn... Has to have uh, it. They call it in-betweening. Yeah, like, so we see, like, the main stance, and then when we move from one stance to another, there there would be a natural fluid movement, right? Bob Clampett did not work that way. <laughs> Bob Clampett was not limited by mm. your mm. limitedness. Like he was not limited, man. Uh, like my, look at his look at his in between mm. animations. They are the works of a mad person, yeah, yeah. and I love him for it. Uh, but my point is that the only reason we can cite you know Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century is because when it came to Saturday morning programming Mm -hmm. uh, only a certain number of films were made available to TV stations so as such a lot of kids grew up on a very limited number of those films yeah I think if little kids had access to Bob Clampett, first of all, we'd have a lot weirder kids. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, we'd be more familiar with the works of Bob Clampett or Robert McKimson or, or you know, Fritz Freeling. Well, Fritz Freeling, he's, he's pretty well known. But, um, yeah. but like all of those directors would be household names the same way Chuck Jones is. Uh, and I feel the same way about Ernst Lubitsch. I feel like if his films from the 30s were given airtime, the same way that you know all the new films are, yeah. 
people would discover it. And well, I'm hoping that I, I HBO Max thing. comes out because they have mm. access to all those cartoons and they're putting mm. out new Looney Tunes cartoons. Mm. I have no idea if they'll be any good. I hope they are. But hopefully they have all the old ones yeah. as well. The, like, that the, would be great. And we've talked about this before. When Netflix says we're moving all of our catalog online and we're going to have this huge repository of films, film critics everywhere started just drooling all over themselves. Like, you mean people just have instant access to all the classics and you're just going to have this growing catalog, this infinite catalog of all cinema. It's going to be wonderful. We want a library. And then uh, Netflix said, actually, we're a TV studio. We're going to make our own shows and you only get like certain films and they're not organized well. Yeah. Uh, I wrote an article once, like, what if Netflix was like the video store they said they were going to be? It's like, there's no clerk. <laughs> the videos aren't really well organized by genre. There's no uh, alphabetization whatsoever. Mm-hmm. If you try to make a complaint, they just said, be sure to subscribe to join our TV stations. Like, I thought this was a video store. <laughs> What's going on? Now, we mostly I've, focus on the stuff we make ourselves. Yeah. Uh, yeah so, pretty bad. It, Netflix would be the worst video store I, uh, you ever walked into. Maybe this is just the cockeyed optimist in me, but I have faith that audiences would enjoy something uh, older or more obscure if it is great and if they had ready access to it. You know, I think I think sometimes gateway uh, stuff matters. You want something that uh, yeah, still okay. hits, still hits hard, doesn't well, I mean, it, it doesn't require a lot of context in I order think, to appreciate where it comes from. I think um, Ernst Lubitsch is a great way to start, though, because he's just such a, a frothy, funny filmmaker. I, I would argue that Trouble in Paradise mm. and um, Design yeah. for Living mm. are as saucy <laughs> as any... The Design for Living is about an open relationship in the early 1930s. Mm. Okay, it's really kind of kinky. Um, so that's really, really cool. But I actually, um, I had a, I've had some really good experiences recommending older movies to people lately and the people actually having the time to go back, rediscover it. Uh, I talked a lot about Night of the Hunter not that long ago because um, they'd announced that they want to remake it. Mm. And someone was like, oh, a remake of Night of the Hunter? That'd be the worst thing ever. And I'm like, you know, they already remade that, right? In the 1990s? Mm. And everyone's like, what? So I talked a bit about Night of the Hunter, and some people on Twitter told me that they went out and saw Night of the Hunter because I spoke about it mm-hmm. so lovingly. And they were blown away, and they really admired it. Why? Because Night of the Hunter is one of the best movies ever made. <laughs> it might not be in my top ten, but it's in my top fifty at least. Like, it's really mm. incredible filmmaking. If it were made today, um, it would be just as incredible. Oh, first and only time director that one. Yeah, Charles Lawton, Charles one Lawton of the great the actor, actors. Yeah. One of the great actors, period. Um, so I think that movie is so stylish and dark and moody and universal in its themes about uh, you know abuse and religion and childhood that it still plays just as well today. Mm-hmm. And I think if you can get people to watch a couple of movies from the era that still play mm-hmm. just as well today, you can start guiding them into things that maybe require a Robert Osborne intro and Turner Classic Movies mm-hmm. in order to fully appreciate when it came out, why yeah. it was risky, why it was risky at the time, why it was risky at the time, why it was notable at the time, even though maybe there are so many imitators mm-hmm. now that they don't necessarily pack the same wall up. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that is our responsibility as film critics. That's one of the reasons why I think it is the responsibility of every film pundit, critic, journalist, whatever, to keep talking about older cinema when it's relevant. And if you actually know and care about older cinema, you'll find that it's relevant all the goddamn time. Yeah, and and, uh, and by all means, uh, author of that Terminator article you mentioned earlier, uh-huh. 
expand your horizons a little bit. Uh, keep, keep watching movies. Yeah, I, Under, I don't understand they, that there were films made before 1977. Look, they knew the Terminator was made when it was made. It just mm. it was just shocking to see mm. that we're going to get this brand. I some people were just like, oh, I've never seen Terminator before. Oh, you're proud of that? No, it just sometimes people miss shit. Yeah. So it's one thing to get a brand new, fresh perspective on something from someone who didn't grow up with something and doesn't have all these rose-colored glasses about it and might actually have a fresh new perspective that Mm. isn't tainted by a ongoing awareness of popular culture and being immersed in existing fandoms and pre-existing ideas that have been perpetuating over and over and over again and maybe not questioning. Mm -hmm. Like, we just had a a podcast we did on our Patreon where we talked about uh, The City on the Edge of Forever, which is considered by many to be Mm -hmm. the best Star Trek episode ever of any series. Mm -hmm. And we had Scott Mance on. And I, who had never really watched the episode all the way through... Mm -hmm took issue with parts of it. And Scott, he held his ground. He still thinks it's a brilliant episode. But we had a real interesting conversation where he just pointed out, like, you know, I know so many Star Trek people. I talk Star Trek Mm. so much. Some of these things just never got brought up before. (laughs) So not that I'm special or new. It's just I was looking at it through a contemporary lens. And a lot of people look at it through a a contextual lens. Mm. So I think a contemporary look at something like Terminator from someone who's looking at it with completely fresh eyes is really valuable. It wasn't in the article. That's the thing that pissed me off. We we need fresh perspectives all the time. That's not the issue. The issue is just we need a broader perspective all the time as well. And uh, I, I think we need to hear from all critics, but also I, I think if you're go- if you are a good critic, you need to at least know have at least a, a little bit more of a broad knowledge well, than what you're describing seems to to display. Maybe that guy did know a lot about cinema maybe. and was like sort of here's here's something that I think tr- is trying fair. to come up with a little bit more sensationalized. Here's something that I actually think is completely fair. Hmm. Sometimes you can know a lot about a subject and hmm. not have a lot to say about every individual part of it. Yeah, like we talk about new movies, and you'll notice when we like do new movies, we put like time codes on them so people can skip to the movie they want to hear about. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we talk about a movie for a half hour, forty five minutes. Yeah, sometimes we talk about it for five. Sometimes we just don't have that much to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's okay to watch a movie and just say, "Listen, this actually didn't make an impact on me. Mm-hmm. Here's what it's about. I enjoyed watching it. I didn't enjoy watching it. Here's why. But nothing about the movie made me passionate." Yeah. Like, there's nothing I felt like I had to talk about. I think that's okay to say. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean you should write an article about that movie. Maybe you shouldn't. No, yeah, don't. (laughs) Maybe you don't have something. If I don't have anything meaningful to say about a movie, I'm not going to pick up an article where I have to write 2,000 words about it. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. Or if if you are, then you're going to have to really kind of push through and watch it a couple times and Mm -hmm. try to find what the real meat is. What is this film about? Find some some connection that you didn't think about before. uh, You got to do the work. Put it in perspective of, uh, like, in context of the filmmaker's filmography, whatever you need to do, you know, actually try to find an angle. Essentially, uh, just saying, wow, it's from the 80s uh-huh. about a film there's, that there's, was from the 80s. There's is, a sentence in it that's like that, Schwarzenegger yeah. didn't even have eyebrows. And I'm like, he gets him burned off halfway yeah, through he, the movie, he, for he, one thing. He did for the first half, and, and then he got in an accident, and then he didn't have them. And secondly, <laughs> that's not a meaningful critique. <laughs> that doesn't really... Like, what, what, was he using that to illustrate, like, a detail that I the director might have said, forgotten or something? It's had a weird vibe, I guess. But yeah. I'm like, it's... Just, anyway, anyway, listen, yeah. we should move on. Yeah. Um, listen... I suppose, I suppose if you see, like... 
So you watch like Terminator back to back with something like Maniac Cop, you might think Ooh. that they're both just sort of like that's a good double total, feature. Well, actually. it's a great double feature for one, but yeah. uh, Maniac Cop is pretty also pretty low fi. The first Terminator, although it has some pretty slick, slick special effects, was also low fi. Yeah, for, it was very cheap for, even for the time. And, yeah, uh, they did a lot with that budget, but mm, yeah, it was it was cheap. It was a cheap movie. Was, yeah, you know, not not like the gigantic budgets that James Cameron currently works with. Yeah. So. It maybe that was the perspective this guy was bringing to it mm. uh, that that this resembles cheap, much worse B movies to the point where I can't tell it apart from a lot of these other B movies. Alas, there wasn't context. Yeah, yeah. And, and I didn't get that well, context. Well, all right. Only what the, what the big complaint was: uh, this wasn't that far removed. Like this wasn't that many years removed from Terminator Two, mm. and this was the visual effects you could get. I'm like, yeah, it was fucking cheap. Yeah. <laughs> what do you fucking want for yeah, a cheap ass movie? This was pretty good. I've told this story before. There's a great shot in Terminator where uh, the the light in the Terminator at yeah. the end of the movie, the light goes out in the Terminator's eye after it's been crushed. Spoilers on the end of that movie. Um, <laughs> If you've seen Terminator Genesis, it was spoiled like eight times over. So um, they they think you know the ending. But uh, yeah, the uh, there was a shot. If you turn evidently, two, it's spoiled. Like, uh, yeah, at, 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 at the end of that movie, the the Terminator, the robot, was crushed in this big hydraulic press, and there was a close up of the term like a light in the Terminator's eye going out as it's yeah. like crushed between the two silver plates of the the hydraulic press, yeah. and it's, there's like it smoke blowing by. Illustrates yeah. clearly and visually mm-hmm. the death of yeah. the Terminator. It's come back before. This time, yeah. it's final. Done. That was done in James Cameron's garage yep. with a Christmas light, two pieces of styrofoam that had been spray painted silver, and cigarettes. Yeah, that's it. They just filmed it up close. They pulled the plug on the little light. They painted. They put the the plates up there. It was just styrofoam, and yeah, somebody blew a plume of smoke into the frame. Ingenious. That's it. That's it all works. we needed. That's all yeah. we need. It's great storytelling. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it requires novel yeah. thinking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are we have time for one more? Yeah, yeah, sure. Oh, let's uh, do one here's, more. Here's a here's a letter from Jacob. Hi, Jacob. Okay. Uh, hey, Bibbs and Whitney. I've been a huge fan of your guys ever since I found you thanks to the Schmodown. Oh, mm. thank you for watching us. Um, I've always wanted to write in, but I never figured out what question I wanted to ask. Now I've actually thought of two. Okay. Uh, number one, with Tiger King sweeping the nation. Its operatic craziness seems ripe for a film adaptation. That's what everybody's been saying. Uh, if you guys have watched it, and with that in mind, who would you cast as Joe Exotic and as arch rival Carol Baskin, and who would you want to direct it? I haven't figured out casting, but I think Harmony Kareen would be a great choice to direct <laughs> it. Oh, God. Uh, he seems to specialize in crazy, off-centered gutter of humanity, and I think uh, he'd have a field day with the story of self-proclaimed gay, gun-toting hillbilly who ran for governor of Oklahoma and president also. No um, what are your thoughts? And number two, one director I'm finding myself incredibly intrigued by is Leos Carax. Here we go. Hey! He did Holy Motors and Mauve Sang. Um, I, I'm not exactly where, sure where to start. Start with Holy Motors. We talked about it already. Uh, what film would you recommend as an introduction to the films of this european master holy motors uh thank you for your thoughts keep the best um keep keep being the most rockmeister mccooling podcast in the world thanks jacob uh Uh, have you watched tiger king yet okay uh no okay i have not watched tiger king uh frankly i'm not interested i know everyone's talking about it just Mm. nothing about it makes you want to go yay uh this is actually kind of funny because the day that we're reading this email Mm. uh is the day that they announced that they are doing a fictionalized tv series Mm. about the events of tiger king and that nicholas cage is going to play tiger Mm. king yeah joe exotic nicholas cage is going to play him for based on what i've seen that's good casting although uh tom lennon has been petitioning so hard that he has made himself an authentic Joe Exotic outfit. Nice. And has been appearing on Instagram on the daily doing his Joe Exotic impersonation. Oh, my God. And he'd be great because he actually kind of looks the part as well. That is very, 
very yes yeah, as very as, as for casting i'm sure there are you know plenty of actors who are stumbling over the, over each other to play joe exotic mm-hmm. uh in terms of who I would want to direct that story, John Waters. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know the story, though? You've surely heard like what this this big story. I, is about. I got the gist. Uh, of it, Joe yeah. Exotic was a big cat wrangler whose uh, expertise with animals was all self taught. He just sort of had a bunch of cats and li- lived with big cats and yeah. didn't necessarily treat them very well, but like kept them in his house anyways. This weird sort of grizzly man vibe about it. These yeah. people who, oh no, these animals, are they're just, they just want to be your friends and then they'll just fucking eat you one day. Yeah. And it was about how uh, there was a rival, uh, Carol Baskin in another state who and there's a big part of the documentary as she maybe, probably, possibly 100% fed her ex-husband to a tiger. Uh, and how they were sort of at each other's throats for respectively treating their animals poorly because she also had this animal sanctuary. Yeah. But both of them weren't really authorized by any kind of official body. They just sort of proclaimed themselves experts. And yeah, this weird, all of these weird crimes going on and just how these people were horrible people who would just backstab each other. And uh, Joe Exotic ended up going to prison for putting out a hit on Carol Baskin. I feel like... Harmony Corrine would definitely do that well. He understands, you know, sort of mm. that trashy Americana better than most directors. But when it comes to uh, directors who have a legitimate affection for their freakish characters, go with John Waters. Yeah. Uh, John Waters, he, I mean, he, he says he doesn't want to direct anymore, and he's in his late 70s now, and so mm. he probably doesn't have to do he, the Tiger he King movie. doesn't have to. He doesn't want to. But, but uh, we can dream, can't we? We can dream. I, I imagine if he stepped up and says, hey, I want to do the Tiger King movie. I want to do it my way. And they say, sure, here's as much money as you want. He'd just say, oh, thank fuck. Because <laughs> I got to interview John Waters once and about uh, multiple maniacs. I said, did the film turn out the way you want? He said, no, none of the movies I make come out the way I want them to. It's just a, <laughs> everything's limited. I'm working on a low budget every single time. Now, all of yeah. the, the, the financiers pull out at the last minute on all my movies. It sucks. Yeah. The only reason i got a dirty shame made was because johnny knoxville was in it like he was the star <laughs> like he had some star power and that's the reason people gathered around that movie and of course it tanked terribly which is a shame because i really like a dirty shame yeah uh and he hasn't made a film since and that was like 2004 oh, uh, um so uh but okay. but i think if if you're going to make a tiger king movie brush off the mothballs get <laughs> get john waters out there i'm sure he'd do it an exemplary job uh, I would also like to recommend. I'm, I haven't seen mm. every Leos Carax film, but I did see a really good one called Move Sang. Yeah, uh, aka Bad Blood. Mm. It's really fucking cool. I saw this on film school. Mm. Uh, it's about a future in which there is uh, a deadly virus that kills you if you have sex without love. <laughs> like if you're not like emotionally connected mm. to somebody and you have sex, it kills you. Mm. And it's all about how there might be a, a, a cure mm. and a heist to try to rescue <laughs> like <laughs> just cheap sex. Um, and it's got a sequence, it's got a dance sequence to David Bowie's modern love mm. that has been paid homage to so many times mm, ripped off especially yeah. by Greta Gerwig Greta mm. Gerwig clearly loves this shot mm. so well, worth it, checking it was, out it was in Frances Ha it was like in Frances Ha the exact same is, shot was in Frances Ha and then Hall, I think yeah. she used a similar version of it again in both Little Women and um, uh, Lady Bird there's like yeah, a, there's yeah. like definitely a callback to it, uh, mm. and in Francis Ha, it's very clearly an, an homage. Like if you've seen both films, you're just like, I know mm. what she saw, 
And then she just keeps using it over and over again because it's fucking great. Um, so, yeah, I would recommend that as well. Because okay. I'm, uh, I'm not completely oblivious to the works of Leo's character. Right. <laughs> uh, so, everybody, thank you so much for writing in. If you want to write in, you can mm. write in letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And we will hopefully read your letters mm. on the air. We sure as hell try to get to as many as we can while still having a good conversation about everyone who, uh, everyone's letter who writes in. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, we are at Critic Acclaim. Mm-hmm. Because Critically Acclaimed was too, too many, long for Twitter. Too many characters for the brevity of Twitter. <sighs> uh, you can also find me. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, we have a Facebook page uh, for Critically Acclaimed to Cancel Too Soon. You can join that if you want to have a conversation. Uh, you can also head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, uh, where we have a ton of exclusive content, mm-hmm. uh, including bonus podcasts at every single tier. A um, lot of cool stuff uh, heading on over there. And whatever tier you sign up for, there's already a backlog, so that'll keep you pretty busy. Um, and uh, other things as well, probably. I'm forgetting something. <laughs> no, I think uh, I'm always I think forgetting something. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. That'd be great. Um, so yeah, thank you everybody for writing in. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs>